0: Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Over the past few years, I have been interested and fascinated by the story of how Jews in the United States forged a culture that was concentrated in eastern United States cities from the 1700s and spread through the American West and South throughout the 19th century. The story of these travels is told in the wonderful book, Jews on the Frontier, Religion and Mobility in 19th Century America by Dr. Sherry Rabin, assistant professor at Oberlin College. The paperback of Jews on the Frontier is out now from New York University Press. Dr. Rabin has discussed Jews on the Frontier on The Excellent Age of Jackson and Jewish History Matters podcasts, both of which are excellent conversations. This conversation with Dr. Rabin focuses on a November 2019 article she wrote called American Jews How 1789 Created 2019, which was released recently by the Journal of the Early Republic. Rabin and I discuss her academic background and then explicitly discuss why 1789 and the U.S. Constitution were so pivotal in the development of Jewish communities and citizenship in the United States. If you are interested in the constitution and religious freedom and expression in the united states this episode is for you make sure to go follow dr sherry rabin's work at sherryrabin.com or on twitter at sherry Rabin. both links are below in the show notes if you want to follow me find me on twitter at classical underscore ideas or on facebook and patreon by searching classical ideas podcast So without further delay, please enjoy my fantastic conversation with Dr. Sherry Rabin discussing the article, American Jews, How 1789 Created 2019. Dr. Sherry Rabin, welcome to Classical Ideas.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit?
1: Sure. Um, My name is Sherry Rabin. I am a assistant professor of Jewish studies and religion at Oberlin College in Ohio, where I teach classes in Jewish studies and also in American religious history. And I'm the author of Jews on the Frontier: Religion and Mobility in 19th Century America, which will be coming out in paperback December 15th. Hooray!
0: Hey, fantastic! Congratulations! That's so cool. Thank Whenever you. it makes like the transition from the academic like hardback to the paperback, because that's like opening up to like a whole new audience, isn't it?
1: Exactly. It just makes it a, a more comfortable price point, and yeah, people can stick it in their in their purse more easily.
0: <laughs> awesome. Cool. So what's a little bit of your backstory about how you came to be interested in your academic areas of expertise? Like, how did you get into this?
1: Yeah, so I was in college and I was a journalism major who had to take a fourth class and I sort of scrambled to find a class that fit my schedule that might like get one of my requirements out of the way. And there was a philosophy of religion class that fulfilled an ethics requirement. And I just kind of fell in love with with thinking about religion. And then I ended up taking an American religious history class about a year later. And it, it just sort of blew my mind because I, I obviously grew up in the United States Um, And I grew up sort of in a pretty close-knit Jewish community, and so I knew that I was surrounded by... Christians and just knew nothing about Christianity. So initially there was sort of the fun rebellion of, of you know, learning the difference between Baptists and Presbyterians and, mm. and sort of learning like what is the 85% of the population that is Christian, like what's what's up with them? Um, so I, I that was sort of my entryway into it. And then once I started thinking about doing deeper research, I realized that what I was interested in and what I had things to say was, was Judaism and that there was really a, a, a Place to, to do interesting work thinking about Judaism in relationship to sort of the broader story of religion in America.
0: Cool. Where were you doing your undergraduate studies and into your graduate studies?
1: Uh, my undergraduate was at Boston University, and then I did my PhD at Yale.
0: Awesome. Okay, cool. So, how did you come to determine like your dissertation topic? How did that, what was that little path like of deciding about this era of history um, that you focus on?
1: Yeah, it was definitely a surprise. I thought I was going to do kind of post-1945, more recent history. Um, But I went to graduate school, and I ended up taking a class on religion in the American West. Uh, And when you study religion in the American West, like the exciting things are all happening in the 19th century. And so that class really pushed me to think about the 19th century more and more. Um, and then I ended up sort of um, in the course of writing a paper for that class, stumbling upon um, a book of, of letters that Rabbi Isaac Merwaz had written on a trip to San Francisco from his home in Cincinnati in 1877. Um, and he is a very well-known sort of reform rabbi, lots been written about him, but this was like a very different version of him and and there was just the the people he was meeting and talking to were were different than what i had had read about and so it was kind of that initial group of of this of travel letters essentially that that led me into thinking more about the, the 19th century um, as a, a time that that was really important in the development of American Judaism and and that that development didn't just happen in New York City but happened sort of throughout the the American continent and that's that's the what ended up being Jews on the frontier
0: awesome and that kind of reminds me of the work of Michael Cohen as well at Tulane who writes about mm-hmm. like the cotton capitalists of the south yeah. and the Judaism in the south yeah. like that's so cool are you two colleagues like do you do you two yeah. communicate about your work
1: Yeah, we've collaborated on a number of things. We are actually co-editing the Oxford Handbook of American Jewish History, um, amongst other things. And yeah, there's kind of a group of us who have been sort of revisiting the 19th century, um, which had been mostly sort of passed over and, and are kind of reminding people, hey, there's all of this this time before the turn of the 20th century in which a lot of important things were happening.
0: That is so cool. Okay. Um, The world is small sometimes, especially in academic religious studies. Um, Yes. (laughs) So
1: um,
0: I read a recent article of yours this week that was recently published by the Panorama from the Journal of the Early Republic. And the title of the article caught my eye on Twitter. And it's American Jews, How 1789 Created 2019. The reason this title captured my attention is because, you know, I'm always, as a teacher, I'm always trying to find ways to make information that's old relevant to young people now. Mm -hmm. And so that title just grabbed me because it makes a direct link between 1789 and today, which is so cool. So the opening line of that article um, is striking from my view um, of following the news for the past couple years. And like part of that line reads, the place of Jews in American society is complicated and so like that immediately got me thinking of the events of Charlottesville and Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh um as well as like a cemetery desecration in my hometown in St. Louis and like other events like this makes complicated the term complicated seem like an understatement almost but um if we look around the world as well like France for example the mood of Judaism seems challenging and complicated all over the world um what can you say about the mood of American Judaism right now? Are things good? Are things still complicated? How is it?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. It's, it kind of, de- to some extent, depends on who you ask, as, as in all questions. But I think there is a sense of, of sort of heightened intensity and concern amongst American Jews because of these sort of dramatic anti-Semitic events and in recent years, Charlottesville, Pittsburgh. Um, there's been a sort of whole wave of American Jewish historians sort of, um, you know, trying to grapple with, with, you know, have we been telling American Jewish history wrong? Have we been telling it as, as a story of sort of happy success um, you know, like, in a way that that now is the, the events of recent years is, is totally sort of raising questions about so people are definitely re, sort of concerned about antisemitism. Um, and historians are really trying to sort of rethink our narratives in light of, of recent events. Um, and American Jews are, are grappling with this in their own communities, um, right? Like lots of um, synagogues are having active shooter drills and have, you know, uh, um, police officers outside during services. Um, There's also a lot of sort of division and anxiety around the state of Israel and and politics around Israel and and Donald Trump. And and there's a lot of communal division and infighting um, around around that too. So it's a time of, of sort of anxiety and intensity, but sort of interestingly, that's also, I think, um, invigorated certain parts of the community in, in interesting ways. Um, like you see um, groups like the Never Again Action, which is a group of Jews protesting against ICE and sort of um, doing sort of p- political activism explicitly linked to their Jewish identity and, and sort of drawing on Jews' history as immigrants and refugees in order to sort of um, Advocate for immigrant communities today. Um, a couple of years ago, this um, magazine, Jewish Currents, was revived. Um, at, it's sort of a Jewish leftist publication, and it's really been been doing a lot recently. They they had a, a op-ed by Bernie Sanders about anti-Semitism. Um, they had a book review by Judith Butler recently. So um, there's this sort of renewed attention to sort of um, the world around us and and sort of. The, the place of Jews within it and and how Jews are, are you know being treated and what Jews can sort of do out in, in the wider world. So even though lots of tension and anxiety, I also see um, lots of creativity and, and innovation.
0: Are there any journalists covering these issues that you make sure to read everything they write? Like, who do you personally follow?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. There's been lots of fights. There's different Jewish um, publications. um that that have sort of different perspectives. Um, I think Jewish Currents has been doing a lot of really interesting things. And if you want to see a sort of voice of a younger, more progressive sort of Jewish um, viewpoint, I think Jewish Currents has been um, has been really pivotal. Awesome. Um, I can't think of a particular journalist, but um, yeah, they're they're doing interesting things.
0: That's okay. So the next thing in this article. Um American Jews, how 1789 created 2019, is you refer to some recent polling in the first paragraph right off the bat Mm -hmm. that shows how Americans feel most warmly towards Jews of all religious groups, but that we also know very little about Judaism itself. And that resonates with me now, having spoken with you, because you sort of wrote, uh, spoke just a minute ago about your own experience of wanting to know more about the people outside of your community whenever you were in the university, you know? And so, um, so we feel warmly. The warm feelings are there broadly, but there's a lack of religious literacy about Judaism. Um, Are there any, like, basics that you think it would be worth everybody knowing about to kind of, like, bridge this divide so that our warm feelings are also backed up by some sort of, like, practical knowledge?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think sort of related to the, the last question is that Jews are incredibly diverse, right? There's, um, there's an old saying that if you have two Jews, you have three opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's like many different ways in which Jews sort of think about their Jewishness and practice their Ju- Jewishness and, and sort of um, act it out in the world. Um, I think the other thing and, and the, probably maybe part of the reason why um, it's hard for people to sort of understand Judaism is that you know Judaism is a it's understood as a religion right it's it's one of the world religions um, it's part of the sort of Judeo Christian sort of background of America as, as many sort of politicians will will say um, but I think it's also kind of an not a perfect fit with how we typically think about religion um, right uh, it's something that people can convert to, but also most Jews are born Jewish, right? A Jewish identity traditionally comes through, um, the, your mother and, and, um, in some movements now also through the father, um, you, you know, there are Jewish theological beliefs, but also there are many Jews who identify as Jews who are who are atheists or who consider themselves secular Jews. There are Jews who are also Buddhists and people tend to be OK with that. Um, but conversion to Christianity is, is tended tends to be sort of a a, a, a a bridge too far for most Jews. Um, so there's lots of um, of different sort of things that um, that Jews believe and do. And and so the the category of religion, um, you know, while useful in some ways for talking about Jews, in other ways Jews sort of can't be contained within that that category. So it is important for basic literacy to like know that, you know, the Jewish Sabbath is on Saturday, Friday night to Saturday night, not Sunday. Um, but also they're everything in in sort of Jewish history and religion and culture is, is very contested.
0: <laughs> I think I saw recently on Twitter that there's a new book coming out. I think it's called American Jew Yeah,
1: Emily Siglo's book. I definitely would recommend that. I, yeah. may have,
0: I may have actually seen that on your Twitter profile. Actually, did you share that? I think I did, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that looks really, really cool. So I love the internal diversity question. I always love talking about that. That's so cool because, you know, that only... Um, opens us up to better dialogue about like, Oh really? I didn't know that. I love those kinds of light bulb moments. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. There are these sort of norms and, and practices and ideals and right things that, that rabbis say that you should do and that they preach. But then, you know, first of all, the rabbis don't agree (laughs) and have rarely agreed. And then how people sort of take the, the, these various conversations within sort of Jewish discourse out into the world and into their lives you know, that can look many different ways.
0: So turning uh, specifically back to this article, you include three dates in this article. And uh, these, are, these, these dates are post-1789, post-1945, and post-2016. So what is it about these three dates that makes them worth discussing for understanding Judaism in the United States?
1: Yeah. So the the case I make in the argument um, in, in the article is for 1789 and that the, the U.S. Constitution marks this really important shift in sort of um, Jewish history um, because it sort of sets up the framework for how Jews are going to be sort of understood and categorized in American society, which was, you know, not at all an easy question in most of the world, especially in, in Europe. The Jewish question was sort of a major political struggle through across the 19th century, um, debates and and fights over sort of can Jews be citizens? Um, You know, what do they need to do in order to be citizens? Right. But in in the US in 1789, um, you know, the founding documents, as I mentioned in the article, never mention Jews at all. Um, right. And so they essentially kind of get um, swept in through the, the back door without much sort of discussion or debate as, as white people, as free whites who are granted access to naturalization and citizenship and then who are granted um, the protections of the First Amendment, um, So, which is part of what encourages the sort of um, the, the conversation about Ju- Judaism being a a religion right um, the protections of the First Amendment sort of um, make it pr- particularly desirable to to present your your form of difference as religious um, 1945 I think is is really important because it's right the, the end of World War II the the sort of beginning of the post Holocaust period um, right so it's a period in which sort of um, conversations about Jews are happening in sort of a different register, right? This this major um, genocide uh, against Jews having just occurred. Um, it's also so it's a period in which there's um, a sort of softening to Jews in some ways in American society. Um, this is where we first see the language of the Judeo Christian America, right? Mm. Jews kind of get get brought in, um, kind of for the first time as. as um, in a in a sort of direct way, as part of the sort of vision and and sort of foundation of the country, um, and it's a period in which. Um Eastern European Jewish immigrants who had come in the early 20th century, them and their children in this post-World War II period start to rise pretty rapidly in sort of socioeconomic status and so start to be sort of um, more comfortable in in American society on on a number of different levels. Um, And of course, you know, for thinking about anti-Semitism today, it's also right that, you know, the end of the Nazi regime in Germany is the beginning of the memory of, of Nazism, you know, mostly in the negative, but, but you know, not sort of positive strains sort of remaining in subterranean pockets of, of American society. Um, and then 2016, of course, is the, the most recent election, um, right, in ha- having a president in power who both has Jews in his family and, and very closely in his inner circle, but then also, you know, has many, um, you know, alt right um, individuals who some of whom traffic in, in anti-Semitic um, discourse as sort of part of his inner circle as well, right? And the, mo- the most famous incident being um, in the aftermath of Charlottesville when he said that there was fine people on both sides um, of a neo-Nazi rally that was um, chanting "Jews will not replace us," right? So that is part of this of this new sort of context um, that that I'm trying to sort of mark and then also explain
0: so we've got these three dates 1789 1945 and 19 and 2016 so you mentioned also in the article that jews lived and governed differently for most of western history so maybe like pre-1789 how did jews mostly live and govern uh most specifically in europe as far as i can tell
1: yeah, so Jews part of what's, you know, so challenging about I think for Americans in, in thinking about Ju- Judaism and, and part of this sort of um, confusion around Jews that I that I talk about is the fact that Jews are a pre-modern collectivity and religion is a modern category. Race mm. is also a modern category right The ways that American society thinks about human difference are through these very modern categories and Jews predate them um, right So for much of Jewish history, Jews lived as sort of autonomous collective groups um, who would be given permission by um, a ruler to live in a particular area. So in a town in, in, you know, the Holy Roman em- Empire, um, the ruler would give, you know, communal permission um, for Jews to to be there, which could be rescinded at any point. But as long as it was there, there was an official sort of um, Jewish communal structure governing the Jewish community. So um, Jews, you know, essentially um, had their, their own um forms of, of government, sort of with, even within the broader structure of, of the places um, in which they lived. So, um, you know, Jewish communities could regulate themselves and, and could punish, you know, misbehaviors w- within their community um, through excommunication. Um, so part of what happens in, you know, the um, 18th century is the rise of enlightenment thought and, and um, sort of various movements in, in Western intellectual um, thought that, that starts to raise the question of, you know, can Jews become come to be seen not as a communal body that sort of governs itself? Can they be seen as, as individuals? And, and what's it going to take to sort of transform them into individual citizens? Um, and is that desirable? So in
0: 1789, I think you wrote that there was only about 2,500 Jews in all of the United States, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So right. um, were, and I know that you said that they were sort of like default given citizenship uh, as free whites, because they weren't specifically mentioned as a distinct group within the Constitution, um, was there any pushback around that, or were they like just like legitimately forgotten about when the Constitution was being mentioned? Like, were people like you know concerned about that? Was there any pushback um, from the people who were writing the Constitution, or is there just no evidence that they that they were even considered whatsoever?
1: So there's there's others who can speak more specifically to the the sort of on the ground happenings, but um, they met in Philadelphia, and there was a, a relatively large Jewish population in Philadelphia. In fact, um, during the Revolutionary War, basically all of the Jews from New York moved to Philadelphia when the when the British um, came in and and occupied New York. So um, there was a sizable Jewish community in Philadelphia that the you know founders would have been aware of. Um, so they it's not like they weren't weren't aware of it. it's It's more just that you know they were thinking about other other more pressing forms of difference, right? Um, they're dealing with with slavery and they're dealing with Native Americans. And um, those forms of difference seem more sort of um, troublesome or or worthy of of note and regulation than Jewish difference. Okay. Um,
0: Well, you do refer to a piece of historical evidence and an artifact in the form of a letter in 1789 Mm -hmm. from a man named Levi Sheftal, who was president of Savannah's Mikvah Israel Congregation, which Mm -hmm. I was amazed that it was founded in 1735, too. I thought that was so fascinating. Yeah. Um, So he writes to George Washington thanking him for enfranchising Jews with citizenship and rights. So um, I'm curious, I always love asking historians what some of their favorite like archival discoveries were like um, while they're researching. Um, So, you know, for articles like this one or for your book, did you make any fantastic discoveries that made you sort of like jump for joy as a researcher Mm -hmm. and historian? Like, did you have any like overwhelming moments of hooray? I can't believe I found this.
1: Yeah, well, there's, yeah, there were some moments like that. Um, I ended up using Jewish newspapers a lot. um, And I had a moment when I discovered that the newspapers I was using were digitized, (laughs) that felt like that, which made them a lot easier to use. Um, But I think, you know, in in Jews on the Frontier, part of what I was doing was trying to sort of tease out how was Jewish religious life shaped by this sort of new legal and and political order that we've been talking about? by the sort of challenges of westward expansion Um, so I was trying to see like how did these sort of macro um, political and economic and geographic factors sort of shape religious life so really exciting for me were the moments um, when I found sort of concrete, like nitty gritty, um, direct evidence of, you know, what people were doing and thinking at the time. So the letters, one of the first things I found was a diary. Um, and I actually start the book by talking about um, the diary of, of Edward Rosewater, um, who's a sort of an ordinary sort of Jewish teenager, essentially looking for work. Um, and he keeps careful records. He ends up being the person to telegraph the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862. And then he becomes the founder of the Omaha Bee newspaper in Nebraska. Um, But in this diary, he's like a 19-year-old looking for work and sort of, you know, he has a sweetheart at home, but he's, you know, mixing and mingling. and, And you get this sort of concrete evidence of sort of what does his religious life look like? And he's, he's, when he's in a big city, he goes to synagogue. But when he's in Stevenson, Alabama, for instance, he goes to a camp meeting, um, right? So you get this sort of nitty gritty, like it's, it feels very close to the ground. Like, what are these people doing? You know, what are they thinking? And actually, probably the, the best moment in those diaries is on the eve of like New Year's Eve, 1861. It's about to be January 1st, 1861. And he writes this like deep meditation on like the new year. And he's talking about kind of the sectional troubles and he uses like traditional Jewish language about the the book of life, right? There's this sort of um, discussion around the Jewish New Year, which usually happens in the September, October, um, that what happens in, in the New Year to Day of Atonement period is that you are written in the book of life. And so he's using this very Jewish imagery But he's talking about New Year, the secular New Year in 1861 and sort of he's like, what's the book of life going to going to contain for Mm. 1861? Um, And so you can just see like how he is, you know, very much coming from a, a Jewish place, but so sort of embedded in everything that's happening in American society. And is kind of like looking forward with with sort of trepidation and and fear.
0: How did you even find that diary? Like, where do you get these things?
1: That one um, is at the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati, which is kind of the the best repository um, for American Jewish history. the The other major one is in New York at the Center for Jewish History. Um, and when I was initially doing like my dissertation prospectus, um, they had parts. They had that diary um, online. It was they had it, it like in PDFs online, and I, it was like such a jackpot to find before I even went to the archives that they had these materials online. Um, and it was like exactly sort of making the, the, the document was showing the things that I, that I thought there would be right. That these forms of eclecticism and, um, and, and movement and, and everything. So it really, it was an amazing moment.
0: Awesome. Okay. So we've got this, this time period, this 1789, this writing of the constitution, this enfranchisement of, um, American Jews as white free people, but I gather that everything was not just like totally okay after the Constitution, after the Bill of Rights, and after the Naturalization Act of 1790. Did any states uh, seek to undermine the freedom of the Jews in the late 1700s and throughout the 1800s?
1: Yeah, so this is one of the the interesting and I think maybe sometimes forgotten parts of sort of the story of the founding and the story of religious freedom, is that the the first word of the of the First Amendment is Congress, mm. which means it only applies on the federal level. Um, it only the First Amendment is only deemed to, to apply to the states in like the 1940s, and um, so on the ground in individual states, um, religious freedom is overseen by state level constitutional amendments, um, and is sort of worked out in, in state courts. Um, and this is a period in which, um, you know, there still is very much a, a sense that in order for society to have order and morality, it needs to have some sort of Christian foundation. Um, and so there's a historian, David Sahad who, who writes about this as the moral establishment. Um, the, and there's all of these ways in which, you know, society is still being sort of, um, built on Christian, um, elements. So, right there's um, Christian oaths for office keeping. Um, there's, you know, Protestant uh, texts and and the King James Bible being read in public schools. Um, there's um, governors giving calling sort of days of Thanksgiving in the name of Christ. And most uh, sort of um, annoying for Jews is the are the Sunday closing laws because this is a time in which people work six days a week. Uh, and if you are legally not allowed to work on Sunday. You have to work on Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath. Um, and so that ends up being a sort of major flashpoint for American Jews who, are, who see the promise of religious freedom and say, like, you know, our religious freedom is being violated. Um, but they're living in communities that, that, you know, are still sort of very um, bound up, more and less self consciously, um, but nonetheless sort of bound up in, in Christian assumptions.
0: Awesome. Well, I love that you just mentioned Dave Sahat as well because I love his Mind Pop podcast. And I also yeah. love his book, The Myth of American Religious Freedom, which yep. I have right here. Yeah. I just like pulled That's it right off I'm my shelf I'm after I was like, Dave Sahat.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just it's such a helpful way for thinking about. The, the early republic, right? The, the legal, you know, establishment is gone, but there's, that doesn't mean that, you know, society is totally secular and, and empty of religious influence, right? He shows very powerfully um, the ways in which, you know, um, Christian assumptions and, and in some, some cases sort of direct Christian advocacy end up shaping the, the laws that, that shape American lives.
0: Well, yeah, and you're in uh, the note that there was the mandatory closing of businesses on Sunday forcing Jews to break their own Sabbath. I mean, that is like to me it says some people are going to have to are going to have to bend their their lifestyles to fit this society and it's going to be the Jews who are going to have to accept that bending. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. I was just looking at a, a case from Charleston in 1845, where um, a Jewish man is fined uh, for selling a pair of gloves to a black man on a Sunday, mm. uh, and um, he makes a religious freedom claim and says, "Like my religious freedom is being violated." And and the courts, uh, in 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 their decisions, which decides against him, um, they they literally say, "Like you know, it's your law, it's your religion that makes you you know." Um, that makes you abstain from work on Saturday. It's not our law. You'd need to, and it says another point, you need to respect us, right? Like, you know, we're, we are not, you know, our laws aren't stopping you from doing what you're doing. We just ask that you respect us and our, and they use this very like we language, even though it's a, you know, court document, right? Um, but the the judges are very, very sort of um, aware that Jews are, are other and that they are, are Christian and are, upholding a, a society that they see in in many ways as fundamentally Christian.
0: Do you have any examples of ways that Jews fought back legally or otherwise against these incursions and undermining efforts at the state level?
1: Yeah. So there's the, this case out of Charleston and a couple others as well where Jews, you know, refuse to pay the fine. Usually it's, you know, like a, a fine. Um, so they'll refuse to pay the fine and, and then take it to court. Um, they usually do not have much success in the courts. Um, in Richmond, Virginia, also in 1845, there was a, a sort of um, municipal ordinance for that was going to um, impose stricter um, Sunday laws, um, and Jews were involved in sort of political advocacy against that. And in that case, they actually succeeded, in part because there was others in the community who also were against the sort of tightened restrictions. Um, and also there was actually a, um, the president of the city council was a Jewish man himself. Um, so that probably also played played a factor there. And and you do see Jews um, pretty early on, you know, serving in, in public office and um, in in many places um, which is interesting so that's that's you know one way to try to sort of push for a more inclusive society although you know there the records of of Jewish politicians you know on inclusivity vary um, yeah. especially when you get beyond Jewish inclusivity right mm.
0: yeah, and you just mentioned Richmond and that made me Think about an example actually from Richmond in the article. And you write about how in the Richmond newspaper, there's a quote which says, Why did they, meaning the Jews, come to the United States if it was so intolerable? And like this jumps out at me because, like, it's an attack on the people who are guaranteed a right in the Constitution. But it attacks them when they actually attempt to claim the right that they are legally supposed to have. And it seems to me like there's this trend in the United States of blaming the person who uh, was only seeking to get their, their rights. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're attacking the victim and blaming the victim for their own plight. And it seems to me like we seek to delegitimize the legal concerns of an oppressed people. Yeah, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of like yes, you can be citizens until you make a fuss or ask for accommodations or point out that that things are not as inclusive as like people claim that they are, um, right? And I and I think it it shows that right, like as the as long as Jews are are you know just worshiping how they want and believing what they want, you know, no problem. Um, but it's these forms of religious um, and, and sort of ethnic difference that that are more public, right? Having a separate calendar, right? Um, having sort of distinctive forms of, of economic activity. And, and Jews in this period were sort of overwhelmingly represented in peddling and, and in sort of commerce, right? Um, so it's these forms of difference that, that are sort of public um, that come to be sort of um, flashpoints. And I think that quote is interesting to me too because it also points to sort of Jews' status as, as immigrants, um, right? Uh, and, and which is sort of a, a general sort of sense that, right, the, the community, the American community is for, you know, Christians or at least people who practice their religion in a way that looks very Protestant. Um, it's for people all born here. Um, and I think it, but I think it also has to do with, with sort of understandings of Jews in particular as, as being kind of wandering people who are, you know, never at home, right? So it's, it's drawing on, on sort of a lot of different, um, discourses in a very sort of succinct, uh, you know, um diss essentially.
0: Yeah, because I mean by that time, I mean that that quote was from the eighteen hundreds in the Richmond newspaper. So there could have be been like second, maybe third generation people there by now, especially since we know that early co- congregations were founded in the seventeen thirties. So by the mid eighteen hundreds when that quote was written, people could have been there for generations. I mean, so why did they come here? Well, what do you mean? Like we're talking about second or third generation people that are just seeking to gain the the rights that they were um, given within the Constitution, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and that's that's where the contest is, right? Like what, and and the First Amendment is. So I, I love like close reading the First Amendment, like word by word, with students because it is seems so simple, but really is is not clear at all, right? And that's what you know. You can see throughout American history is these debates over, you know, what does count as, as you know, exercise of religion that is worthy of freedom, right? And, and Jews are saying, like, ability to, you know, observe our own Sabbath without losing a sixth of our income, um, that is exercise of religion that should be protected. And many people in 19th century America are saying, no, the free exercise means praying in your church and, you know, believing what you want. And that's that.
0: So, what lesson is 1789 teaching us today in 2019?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's just always worth returning to the to the founding documents, and I think um, the the First Amendment I, I just find endlessly fascinating because it, it shows us, you know, these these documents how the frameworks of American law and society sort of set up the metrics for belonging in ways that sort of proclaimed their own sort of liberalism and inclusiveness, but that were not as inclusive as they seemed, right? Like at best, uh, the, the first amendment was sort of limiting, limiting for minority groups that or groups that had sort of forms of religion that, that, um, didn't easily fit a sort of private individual belief and worship model. Um, and at worst, it could be, um, it, it, the, these documents could be used to be sort of directly exclusionary of, of groups, right? There's, there's many other groups, right? Who, whose religious practices in this period are, are deemed as, as not religion, but superstition, right? Um, or heathenism. And, and those aren't, aren't worthy of protections either. Um, so I think, you know, religious freedom, um, offers freedom for a very narrow framework and and creates real challenges for groups that that don't fit into this sort of the modes of protestant christianity So a lot
0: of uh, professors out there will be thinking about their courses for next year, and you have a book coming out in paperback um, in December. Um, Yeah. So maybe, like, uh, plug the book a little bit and uh, the new paperback edition of uh, Jews on the Frontier and maybe say what uh, you think that young undergrads and graduate students can get out of reading this era of American religious history.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it— is has been used in courses, I've been told already, and people have had success with it. Um, it is, as one uh, reviewer described it, slim but fascinating. So it is Wonderful. 180 pages, um, not too overwhelming, and the chapters are, are pretty easily a- excerptable. Um, and I think students connect to to sort of the a surprising story in American history, right? The, if they think about Jews, this is not the story of Jews that they um, that they necessarily are familiar, and I think you know the the book sort of lays out the this these sort of legal and political frameworks in the first chapter, and sort of how Jews are are sort of categorized in in American society and what that means for their rights. Um, but then it also goes into sort of the ramifications for that of that for their um, religious lives, and I, I have a lot of sort of nitty gritty, interesting sort of stories and anecdotes from like Jews in Keokuk, Iowa, in 1855, and like what they were doing and how they were thinking about about themselves and and trying to sort of reestablish their religious traditions um, in this new context. And I think it's a story that is, you know, I focus on Jews because I think they're particularly interesting for sort of tracking how sort of political and geographic conditions shape religious life. But I think there's implications for other groups too, right? Um, I sort of show how westward expansion had religious ramifications not just sort of economic or political ones
0: so I know that we mostly talked about this one small article that you wrote recently American Jews how 1789 created 2019 which I found on your Twitter page but you also have a bunch of other stuff that you've written too including your book Jews on the Frontier so where can people find you if they want to follow your work read more of your work and get to know what you do a little better
1: Yeah, so Twitter is good. I'm at Sherry Rabin. Um, I also have a website, SherryRabin.com, And there's a section that has my sort of online writing and and podcasts and stuff. So if you want to see other sort of short internet things that I've written, um, you can head over there.
0: And I will put all of those links that you just mentioned in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, all you got to do is go in your podcast app and go beneath this article into the show notes and click all of the links that we just mentioned. So go find them. Well, Um, Dr. Sherry Rabin, I am super grateful to to you for your time today. I love talking about this article. I thought the topic was um, historically fascinating, but also modern and relevant today, which is just so cool. It makes history come alive for me. And I appreciate that because, you know, now I will remember these things because it makes a connection to 2019 and our lives in the world today. Um, Thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. I've really, really had a good time having you on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at, at outlook.com.